You gotta love St. Peter. You gotta love Peter and those poor benighted disciples who were with him. Peter and James and John, as we just heard a second ago, they're up there on a mountain with Jesus and they're supposed to be there to pray. But they do what they usually do when they're supposed to pray. They start nodding off. They start falling asleep. And then while Jesus is praying, he's transformed. He's transfigured. He looks different. He is different. Or maybe they just see him differently. Maybe they just start to perceive him a little differently than they had before. And then suddenly Jesus is not alone. They see Moses and Elijah with Jesus. And Moses and Elijah and Jesus are up there on the mountain and they're having a chat. <laughs> the two of them are also looking fabulous, Moses and Elijah. And they're talking with Jesus about his coming departure, his exit plan, his plan for a gracious exit, as it were, an exit from them and everything else. Of course, if you read this passage in Greek, as I'm sure you would like to do, you'll notice two things. First, where we read departure, the Greek word is exodus. Exodus, a pretty powerful thing to be discussing, especially when you're talking with Moses. I mean, Mr. Exodus himself right there. And second thing you might see is that the Greek word for transfiguration, now transfiguration is not a word that I, I use every day anyway, I don't know about you, but the Greek word that is here for transfiguration is metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. So up there on the top of that mountain, they're having a bit of a metamorphosis moment. Peter is kind of blown away. By, who wouldn't be? Why not? You've got the giants of the faith right there. You've got Moses, Moshe, the one who leads us to liberation. You've got Elijah, Eliyahu Hanavi the prophet who calls bullshit on powers and principalities of his day. Amen? It's a powerful moment with Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus. A spiritually powerful moment. And what does Peter want to do? Hmm. He proposes a building project. <laughs> he wants to build monuments to this moment. He says, Rabbi, it is so good that we're here because we can build three shelters, three booths, three Sukkot, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Everybody can have their own little spot. Luke gives us a little helpful editorial comment here. You might have realized Luke says he didn't really even know what he was saying. <laughs> well, Peter probably would have gone on not knowing what he was saying, but saying anyway, except something happens. Something happens. Somebody shows up. <laughs> Who shows up? Who shows up? That's not a rhetorical question. Who? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. If I ask you a question, 
up here? The answer is generally either Thank you, just to help you out, in case it's your first time, whatever. There's a sudden epiphany that happens up there on the top of the mountain, and they are all surrounded, covered with a cloud, a cloud of divine presence. And a voice comes out of the cloud, and the voice says, this is my beloved child, listen to him. Listen to him. Shut up and listen to him. You can't blame Peter, though. You can't blame Peter. It's a natural thing when you see something good, when you have something good, something valuable, to try to find a way to preserve it, to preserve that moment, to hold on to it. And it's a natural human thing to want to create structure in order to freeze that moment to preserve what you have, to block it in, to lock it in. It's a natural thing to want to control that structure, to stop movement from happening, to keep anything from changing. We had a moment like that this past week in St. Louis at our denomination's general conference. You might have heard about it. There was this moment after the traditional plan passed, this version of fundamentalist Christianity that seemed to me to be based on the desire to stop winds of change which are already blowing through this church, like it or not, to keep these winds from change from upsetting somebody's status quo. Now the traditional plan, just in case you're not up on the latest and the greatest version. The traditional plan seeks to mandate punishment for people like us who believe that the church should actually be a place of open hearts and open minds and open doors. And the traditional plan seeks to make sure that while all are equal and of sacred worth, some are perhaps less equal and some are perhaps less sacred than others. This traditional plan claims that LGBTQIA people whom God calls into ordained ministry should be denied that ordination. Even people as amazingly called as the Reverend Lee Matthews and hundreds and hundreds of people who are nearly as amazing who are being called by God. Amen? Amen. The traditional plan says that people like me who see things differently should be eliminated from boards of ordained ministry where we presently serve because we're causing problems. The traditional plan, if I may go on just a bit longer, holds that people who are lucky enough to find love in this love-lacking world, lucky enough to find somebody to spend life with and goofy enough to want to declare that love and commitment here in a church should be denied if they share the same gender. And that I, as a minister of God and an evangelist of the gospel of love, should dare to extend the ministry of the church and bless that same gender marriage, I should be thrown out of the ministry. The traditional plan, therefore, is, in my arrogant opinion, an effort 
to block God. Now, I'm no prophet. <laughs> Y'all who have been around for a while will attest to that. I am, I am not a prophet. I am no Elijah or anything close. But I have to call bullshit on this whole thing. I have to call holy bullshit on this whole unholy traditional plan. I have to call, excuse me for saying it, I have to call bullshit. Because the truth is, it's not of God. It's not of the Bible, whatever people may say. I suggest that people who talk about the Bible and quote the Bible should actually read the Bible. It's not of the Spirit. It's not of any spirit I know. It's not of any spirit of God that I have known in my 60 or whatever years as a follower of Jesus and a hanger-outer in church. And it's sure as hell no way to follow the Lord of love. So we had a moment there in St. Louis after the damn thing passed when six or seven of us, mostly from this congregation... Wanted to come down off the mezzanine where they had stuck us onlookers or, and, on, and audited, well, tried to get onto the floor of General Conference where we could be with Benz and with Vicky and the rest of our friends, all of the queer delegates who had been subject for five days of so much narrowness and blasphemy and lies about them. And when we came downstairs to go in and join the rest of the church. We were blocked from entering. The doors were closed. And when we insisted on joining the church that was inside, the church called security on us. And when we still insisted, security called the St. Louis police. Looking back, it was almost funny. It didn't feel funny at the time. It really did not feel funny at the time, but Looking back, it was kind of funny. I mean, what were they afraid of? I mean, you saw us up here. I mean, look at us. <laughs> I mean, what were we? We're Methodists. We're polite. We're boring. <laughs> what were they thinking? But they, there came this other moment. There came this other moment after a little while, and it's a moment I want to tell you about. It's a moment when I suddenly realized I didn't want to be in there anymore. I didn't want to be in there, in that closed-off room, in that closed-off church anymore, because the church wasn't behind those closed doors. As more and more people came to our call, heard our shouting and yelling and singing, and came down off the balconies and stood with us and sang with us, I realized what I should have realized much earlier, that the church wasn't behind those closed doors. The church wasn't what was locked in. The church was what was locked out. And the church could be found where it could always be found, on the edges, on the margins, with the neglected and the disrespected, the hurt and the harm. That's the people that Jesus hung out with. Amen? Those are the people that Jesus hung out with. And why was the church locking itself off from the people that Jesus hung out from and locking itself off from Jesus himself? And so I no longer cared. I no longer cared what they were afraid of because I knew what I was afraid of. I knew suddenly what I was afraid of. And the words of Psalm 121 leapt to my mind and I realized I wasn't afraid of anything. I wasn't afraid of anything. And 
you aren't afraid of anything. Say, I'm not afraid of anything. I'm not afraid of anything. I'm not afraid of anything. <laughs>